Well, good morning. My name is Rob. If this is your first time here, we're really grateful that you've joined us this Sunday. We have a I'm New desk in the foyer. We would love for you to, to drop by and we'd have the chance to meet you and get to know you a little bit. So we would encourage you to do that. Um, I'm going to make a statement here this morning that's only tw- true twice a year. If I said at any other time, you would throw things at me. Uh, but I'll say it today and it will be probably true for most of you. And that is this. Um, I wish I lived in Saskatchewan. How many of you feel like you could say that today? Because Saskatchewan does not change time. Okay, so I grew, up as, I grew up in Saskatchewan, and I remember when I moved here to New Brunswick, and people said, oh, this is time change weekend. And I thought, you can't change time. Time is time. And if you change it, why would you just change it an hour? Like, why wouldn't you do something more dramatic? But So today in Saskatchewan, everybody woke up at the same time. Today we woke up all sharply alerted by our alarm that jolted me out of a dead sleep, and I thought, this can't be right. I must have set my alarm clock for two in the morning, but it uh, was not the case. So happy time change Sunday. Uh, it's great to have you here. We're moving towards Easter today. We're going to start the process of preparing our hearts for the Easter season where we um, celebrate the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we're going to begin moving into this season by really taking time to focus on the cross, the Roman instrument of death that claimed the life of Jesus. Um, If you read through the Gospels, you'll notice that most of the Gospels, by about midpoint of their writing, they start to turn their attention to just the last days of Jesus' life. Uh, The really half of all four accounts of Jesus' life in the Gospels really spend the majority of their time on the last days and hours, and suddenly they zoom right in, and we're started going by hour by hour, day by day, kind of minute by minute, what did Jesus do, how did he live, what was going on, and what can we learn from him as we approach the Easter season? That there's something about the heart of Jesus that compelled him towards the cross that is for us that should be part of our life, that should reflect our heart and life as well. Because to think about it, the cross is an instrument of death. It is the ancient electric chair, the ancient lethal injection. It is a tool for ending someone's life. But if you're a person of faith today, the cross is a symbol of life. You smile. You probably have one maybe in your house. Maybe you have one as a piece of jewelry today. It's the ultimate branding turnaround to take an instrument of cruel death and turn it into something that says, ah, that means life to me. Well, this is what God has done in the cross. And so we're going to focus as we move into this Easter season on a symbol that is actually quite compelling and quite beautiful, that calls us to something greater and deeper than just kind of religious adherence. It's about humility, it's about sacrificing yourself for others, it's about an unconditional love, and it's about a focus of mission on sharing the good news of this season with other people. And today we're going to talk about a phrase that appears in the New Testament that's a little bit interesting, Uh, and that is this, that the cross is foolish, that the message of the cross is foolishness. We're going to be looking today in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I would invite you to turn there in your Bibles. It's on page 1772. We'll start reading at 1 Corinthians 1 verse 17. But let me give you a little bit of a context because we're kind of just jumping right into the middle of a letter here. Um, the, ch- the church that's receiving this letter in Corinth, it's one of the major centers in the ancient world. 
Um, it would be modern Toronto, modern New York, a place of export and business and culture and vitality, a place of great diversity, but it was also known for its wisdom. You might think, well, that's Athens. You know, Athens was kind of that ancient city uh, that was most interested in wisdom, but Corinth was also one of those cities. And the idea was if you could grow in wisdom, you could grow in influence, and if you could grow in influence, you could grow in wealth. That wisdom and acquiring wisdom, the newest ideas of the day, the greatest ideas of our time, would actually make you more influential, and being more influential would actually make you more powerful, and more powerful make you more wealthy. Now, it's hard for us to think about being a center of wisdom because we live in North America. <laughs> I think it's fair to say North America is not sought as kind of the destination for great thinking. We're full of opinions, but probably not great thinking. I mean, our greatest interest in North America, can I make fun of us a little bit? If you're not from North America, you can laugh. It's ease, right? We want easy. We want everything to get easier. I was talking to someone the other day, they said the newest trend in new homes is giant screen televisions in your bathroom. I said, of course, of course. Our greatest interest is more cheese and pizza. We've got cheese on the pizza, we get cheese in the crust, you can now get cheese stuffed pepperoni that gets cooked on the pizza. I mean, this is an interest of ours, right? And entertainment is the other great interest of our culture. I mean, what was the great um, box office this weekend? is about a bear juiced up on cocaine, right? And you're all going to think, oh, I wonder what time that show starts. I could probably get there if this guy doesn't talk too long. Um, so this is our culture. So to imagine a culture that is so focused on growing in wisdom and learning and understanding might be a challenge for us. But they have something common to our day, and that was this. They lived in a very divided and confused society especially the people in the church. The people in the Corinthian church were very divided. You had a Jewish community and you had a Greek community. And for the Jewish community, they were constantly obsessed with what's right, what's wrong, who's clean, who's unclean, what can you do, what can't you do. And the Greeks were constantly like, look, leave all that religious stuff. There's these new ideas. We have to learn them. We have to embrace them. And if we learn and embrace them, then society will get better. And that's to whom Paul is writing. 1 Corinthians 1, starting at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, or the good news, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the, intel the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. And if you're reading in your Bible and you see it's kind of indented or formatted, that's usually when Paul is quoting an Old Testament passage as he is here. Verse 20, where is the wise? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks are looking for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom 
and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. So Paul is talking here about the message of the cross, that it's foolishness. And let's talk about the cross for a second because uh, the Romans used this instrument of death to kill thousands of people during their time in power. Thousands of people. And they weren't just interested in killing you, they were interested in humiliating you. They were going to kill you slowly, very, very slowly, inch by inch by inch. But they were exposing you to the community. They did this so as to humiliate you because you were now going to be a billboard with the message was, Rome wins. And whether you were being executed for political reasons or maybe you did a crime or maybe you just ticked off the wrong people, the message of the cross was, the powerful win and you lose. Now, some people were happy to see Jesus die. Some in the religious community thought Jesus was a sorcerer or a magician because he was doing things that nobody had done before and he was healing people and casting out demons and this just had everybody upset. There were other people who were upset because of the things he taught. They thought, this guy is leading people astray, so if he dies, good. This is going to be good for us religiously. For the Romans, they were happy to see Jesus die for two reasons. Number one, he was a minor political threat to them. He had this group of people that kept talking about the king, a different kingdom other than the Roman kingdom, and they were happy to see him taken care of. And then also they knew if they kill this crazy religious guy, then the Jewish people will be happy, and politically it's a wise move. All this to say that when Jesus dies on the cross, no one is standing underneath it singing the wondrous cross of Christ. No one is standing there saying, oh my goodness, my sins are being forgiven as we speak. No. The message that everybody took away from that moment is, if you mess with Rome, you die. That was the message of the cross at that point. So Paul says to his church members, who are looking, thinking, man, if we can just get people more religious, then they can save themselves. Or if they can just get the latest kind of wisdom, then they can save themselves. Paul says, by comparison, the message that the Jewish rabbi who has come to take away the sins of the world has died on a Roman cross was foolish to them. Now, it's interesting here, the language, if you look at verse 23 that's used. He says that for the Jews, uh, the death of Jesus on a cross was a stumbling block uh, the Greek word for stumbling block is scandalon. We get our English word scandalous from this word. And you can imagine, the Jews were looking, thinking the Messiah is going to come. He's going to get us out from underneath these awful Roman overlords, and we're going to be free. So to think that the person that's supposed to come and lead us to political freedom actually gets killed by the Romans is scandalous. For the Jews, the word foolish means where we get our word from is moronic. For the Greeks, this word didn't just mean slow and dull. It meant kind of on the verge of madness. The idea being, if someone dies a cruel death, how is that going to lead us to an enlightened life? Regardless, the message of a Jewish rabbi who got himself killed by his enemies was moronically scandalous in the time. But God has never worked in the ways that you and I would think as normal. God has never looked into the culture and said, how are things? I'm going to do it that way. If you think about God calling Abram and Sarai, a couple that couldn't have kids, to be the family of nations, that God would call David, the runt of the litter, to be the king of Israel, that he would call Israel to be a nation, the vehicle of blessing in the world. They had 
a stumpy little military. They had no land and they had a small population and yet they were going to be the nation that would bring God's blessing. And then think about Jesus and who followed Jesus. The first followers of Jesus looked more like the cast from Michael Jackson's thriller video. Okay, you had the lean and the blind and the weak and you had tax collectors and prostitutes and fishermen. I mean, this was not the brightest and best. And that is who God used to declare his message to the world. God does not work in the ways that we would expect. This is one of the great messages of the cross. And I think it's a challenge for us today as Christians. It's been a a challenge in every way, in every generation, that God does not work in the ways that our culture values. That the message of faith is not just foolishness, but it's also scandalous at times. And to some people, it's moronic. Now, this doesn't mean that we get to act like morons. It does not mean that we get to treat people in a way that they would hate us. And this is not a message that the gospel is anti-intellectual. Not at all. But it does mean that the core message of the Christian faith, which requires Jesus to die on a cross, will be offensive to some who hear it. And this is what Paul is trying to say to his audience, to the Greeks. The Greeks wanted Jesus to be the wisest of people. The Jews wanted Jesus to be the greatest Jew that kept the rules the best. And Jesus says, no, I'm not here to be the poster child for your thing. I am doing something new. I'm not here to support your thing. I'm here doing God's thing. And you have to enter through me. Throughout history, people have used Jesus to be the poster child of their specific movement. The prosperity gospel, Jesus was the richest person that ever lived. For the social justice movement, Jesus was horribly poor. Jesus was the theological conservative hero. He was the most theologically liberal. Everybody wants to use Jesus for their thing. I mean, I'm sure Jesus was the first oil executive, and Jesus was probably the first member of Greenpeace. If you do a Google search deep enough, you can probably find that. But there's the temptation that Jesus exists to do what I want him to do. And in every age, people try to co-opt Jesus to their thing. Ironically, their thing is never sacrificing their betterment for the blessing of others. And Jesus says to us, I've not come to fit into your tiny little box. I've not come to support what you want me to support. Your ways are too small for me. Your ideas of power are too weak for me. I operate on another level. And if you want to be part of my kingdom and enter my kingdom, you need to come in on my terms. Because in the cross, we see a God who loves us so much that he's willing to offend us and even make us a little bit uncomfortable in order that we can receive what we all so desperately need. Verse 21, Paul says, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who would believe. Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Paul is saying is you can't understand Jesus, who he is, and what he was about until you understand the cross. Jesus wasn't just a wise teacher, he wasn't just a fantastic miracle worker, and he wasn't just an example of how to be nice to people. Jesus, to understand him and his life, you must understand that he came to deal with the sin problem that lives within each of us. And this message that we have a sin problem that needs saving or we need rescuing from 
it was offensive to the Jews, it was offensive to the Greeks, and it's offensive in our day as well. Because in our day, the message is this. The problem is out there. It's with that group or those people. It's a political group. It's a multinational firm. It's this person. It's these isms or that isms. The problems are out there, and the solution is in here. I just need to look within myself. I need to find my true self. I need to empower myself, and if I do that, then I can fix what's wrong. That is kind of the message of our culture. The problem's out there. The solution is in here. And Paul says, I've got this foolish message. The problem is actually in here. And the solution is that man hanging on a Roman cross. In 1910, uh, the Times of London, which is a newspaper, and a newspaper is when you take news and actually print it on paper and hand it out to everybody, and then it's outdated as soon as you hand it out to people. In 1910, the Times of London ran a series of articles um, by kind of modern thinkers and, and um, just kind of philosophers, and they were asked this question, what's wrong with the world today? What is wrong with the world today? And you can imagine if someone, if you came across that online and someone asked what is wrong in the world today, add your comments. You can imagine the list. Politics, government, the rich, the poor, every ism under the sun. Well, Christian Thinker was reading through these responses and he decided, I'm going to write in. His name was G.K. Chesterton. And he decided to write in and this was his answer. And he ended up actually winning the prize. He wrote, Dear Sirs, what's wrong with the world I am. I am. He said, the sin problem that plagues my life is the same sin problem that plagues everybody else's life of all the people that we think are making the world a worse place, that we all fundamentally share the same problem on the inside. And no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we work, no matter how educated we get, how many experiences we have, no matter how much money we get, We can't solve the problem that lies within. And so Paul is writing to these Jews and to these Greeks, offering this message that he said, it's going to sound foolish to some of you, but to some of you, it's going to be the most beautiful thing you've ever heard, that there is hope, that there is an answer for the very thing that plagues me on the inside that so much of this new wisdom or these new religious experiences aren't the answer. The answer is found in Christ hanging on this Roman cross. And that when you know and recognize, you know what, I have a problem and the problem is in here, suddenly you see Savior Jesus and your heart springs to life. Because God loves taking the weak things, the despised things. He takes the things that are shameful and broken, the people that have been tossed to the side, and he invites them all and says, come and follow me. All of you, if you've been really lousy at religion, there's a place for you. If you do not fall in line with the current culture's thinking and you're offside with it, come and follow me. There is a place for you in my family. A place marked by forgiveness, unconditional love, hope, joy, holy purpose, humility, and sacrifice. And Jesus says to us, this is the cross-shaped life. It's the most beautiful way to live. And as we make our way towards Easter, it's our hope that this vision of Jesus and the life that he lived would capture your hearts as well. Let me pray.
Lord, as we begin to tune our hearts to this Easter season, as we start to focus in on your movements, the way and what you said, how you treated people, all that was going on in this season. May our hearts be captivated by the beauty of Christ, the better way, the more wonderful way. And may as we read and take note of all that you're saying and doing in these next few weeks, God, may our hearts spring to life about the opportunity that we have to display the foolishness of the cross, that others might see the great hope for the problem that lies beneath the surface of their lives too, that the hope that we have found in you that makes all the difference in the world, we could share with others, we pray.